You are listening to a podcast from Parkside Church of Christ, a non-denominational church in Dearborn Heights, Michigan, sharing life with Christ, with each other, and with our community. At the beginning of March of this year, we began a series that we are calling The Journey to Easter. Over the course of seven weeks, we are exploring what happened in the seven days leading up to Jesus' resurrection. This series will include Sunday morning sermons and also midweek reflections from leaders at Parkside. This podcast will include both. Thanks for joining us on this journey. You know what I haven't done in a long time? Attend a wedding. Now, there are some big obvious reasons for this, but it still feels kind of weird. I mean, between my age and my profession, my pre-pandemic life meant going to a lot of weddings. I realize that for some of you, that might sound like a dream come true, and for others, it's kind of a nightmare. And I'm not quite sure where I typically fall on that spectrum, but these days, I'm kind of missing it. Which might explain why I have recently found myself reminiscing about weddings that I've been to in the past, and why I'm feeling nostalgic about one particular wedding that Stephanie and I attended five or six years ago. This wedding had to be, without a doubt, the worst wedding I have ever been to. And also, one of the best. It was an outdoor wedding on the shores of Lake St. Clair, which is either a fantastic place to have a wedding, or a terrible place to have a wedding, depending entirely on the weather. And on this particular day, it definitely fell into the terrible side of things. The weather was actually fine before the ceremony started. It was cloudy and muggy, but it wasn't bad. But as we sat out in this garden, with nothing but sky above our heads, waiting for the ceremony to start, we noticed something in the distance. The sky directly in front of us held, coming directly towards us, a huge, dark cloud. The kind of cloud that takes up the entire sky, and it was moving quick. Immediately, everyone in the seats around us started murmuring together. Each one of us was asking the person next to us the same exact question. What is the backup plan in case of rain, and can we start moving towards that now? However, the bride was set on having her wedding outside. So even as the raindrops started to sprinkle, the music began and the bridesmaids and everybody else started making their way up the aisle. Fortunately, most of us had umbrellas. So in clumps of two or three, we huddled together and were doing okay. But then as soon as everybody got in place up front and the minister began by saying, Friends and family, we are gathered here today. Rain started to pour down hard. The bride and groom were safe under this giant umbrella that they had, but the rest of us were just totally sunk. It was the kind of rain that came at you horizontally, you know, so our umbrellas were totally useless. And the minister at this point picked up his pace, quickly explaining what marriage was, and then adding, asking the bride and groom if they promised to love each other for life, to which they replied, I do, and I turned to Steph and, and said, oh good, at least he's doing the abbreviated version so we can all get inside. 
I was wrong about that. <laughs> I was very wrong about that. That, it turns out, was just the intro. After they said yes to their promises, which it turns out for some reason are different than their vows, the minister then said a prayer. And then he talked for a while more about marriage. And then he said a blessing over their marriage. And then, and I am not exaggerating here, he began to list every prominent married couple in the Bible. May your love be like Adam and Eve's, he said. May your marriage be like Abraham and Sarah's. May it be like Isaac and Rebecca's. May it be like Jacob and Rachel's. At this point, I looked at Steph, and she had the same look of horror that I'm sure was in my eyes. This was already going forever, and he was still in the first book of the Bible. There were 65 more to go. And at this point, the rain started coming down even harder, and yet the preacher kept on going. And most of the people in the seats just got up and left, running to their cars. And yet the preacher kept on going. And those of us who were still in our seats were soaked all the way through as if we had just jumped into a pool with all our clothes on and we were slumped over with our faces in our hands trying to protect ourselves from the storm. And at this point, we were just talking openly to each other because nobody could hear what was going on anyway. But then, despite the rain, I looked up towards the front. And on the left, there were the bridesmaids huddled together under umbrellas, their hair falling out of whatever fancy hairdo they had spent the morning working on. And on the right, there were the groomsmen without any umbrellas, standing just straight up, as the, staring directly at the bride and groom as if there weren't gallons of water falling on their heads. And there in the middle were the bride and groom. Their umbrella had long since failed at its job. His, pants were soaked all the way through, her dress was sitting in a puddle, and they were reading personalized vows off of soaked through handwritten notes. And they were both crying openly, their tears mixing with the raindrops running down their faces. And these weren't tears of sadness or disappointment that their big day was ruined. They were both smiling ear to ear, looking at each other right in the eyes, promising to love each other for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, in sunshine or in rain. This, I thought, is what a wedding is all about. This is love. Love isn't a perfect picture, perfect garden on a sunshiny day. Love is standing together, sticking it out, in the midst of the storm. Now, I was not feeling nearly so romantic when a full five hours later, my shoes were still leaking water onto the dance floor at the reception. But for that moment, I was so glad to be at that wedding. I tell this story because as we continue our journey towards Easter, the story of the week leading up to Jesus's death and resurrection, we have arrived at the first of several scenes that center on love. The day after Jesus's big parade into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, a religious leader comes up to Jesus and asks him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And here's what Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is the first 
and greatest commandment. For most, if not all of us, there is nothing surprising about this response. Uh, Loving God is pretty fundamental for most religious people today. Uh, The majority of people in our country and throughout the world claim to love God. Over 70% of Americans and over 50% of people worldwide adhere to some sort of monotheistic religion, meaning they believe in the existence of just one God. And for virtually all of them, professing a love of God is central. They all claim to love God. It is default in so many cultures to say, as we have in a couple of the songs we sang already today, I love God. That's been the default for a long time. However, it hasn't always been like this. For most of human history, love of God was virtually unheard of. It's not that many people weren't religious. People were so religious. They had so many gods, but they didn't love their gods. Or at least that wasn't the point. Uh, The gods weren't lovable, and they definitely weren't looking to be loved. They were looking to be worshipped, or at least appeased. Uh, The point of religion was to do the right thing to impress your god so that he or she might bless you. So if you want your crops to grow, you will sacrifice a cow to Baal and the rain would start to flow. If you were looking for sunshine, you would try to make Ra happy. If you wanted to have a baby, you would visit the temple of Aphrodite before heading home to your spouse. You didn't have to love or really even like your God to get what you wanted. And the gods definitely didn't have to love you. It was really a simple transaction. You scratch their back, they will scratch yours. You make them mad, and they will smite your family. But then, something happened that nobody saw coming. In Egypt, a group of enslaved Hebrews was miraculously freed from captivity. Their God unleashed a whole string of miracles, culminating in this moment when the entire sea was split in two, allowing this enslaved community to escape their Egyptian captors. And this miraculous rescue wasn't, by the way, the result of their good behavior or religious efforts. Apparently their God, Yahweh, had saved them simply because that same God had promised centuries before to bless them and protect them. This wasn't a transaction. This was something different. Exactly what that something was became especially clear later on when God led this group of people through the wilderness right up to the border of the land that God had promised them generations before. Uh, This is all described in the book of Deuteronomy, by the way, which is one of the first books of the Bible and also surprisingly one of the most fascinating. When they all came to this one place, God gathered them all together for a big ceremony for what to me sounds a lot like a wedding. And God starts by reminding them of who God is. God says, I am Yahweh, your God, the one who rescued you from Egypt. I will love you for a thousand generations with a steadfast love. Now, this word, steadfast love, is the same word used 
for the love of a family, the love that a mother has for her child, the love that a groom has for his bride. Uh, this sort of love isn't just affection. It's not just a crush. It's a deep down for the rest of our lives sort of commitment. It's not transactional religion. This is a relational sort of love. And then God says this, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, your God, is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And with those two sentences, the entire world was changed. The entirety of the Bible rests on those two sentences. The entirety of Christianity springs up from those two sentences. The God who loves God's people is the one and only God, and God's people are invited to love God back with everything they've got. And I want to be clear, the, the love described here isn't an emotion or a preference. It's not just a warm feeling towards somebody or a bigger, better version of liking somebody. To use a Bible word here, this sort of love is a covenant, a commitment. It's a promise, a vow, which is literally what God's people do just a few pages further into Deuteronomy. They make a vow, a whole series of vows, actually, to love the God who first loved them. They sign their names to this promise that God had already signed God's name to years before. They vow to love their God for better or for worse. The next thousand or so pages of the Bible is the story of how quickly and how frequently people manage to break that vow. Over and over, God's people are unfaithful. They worship other gods, which aren't actually gods at all. They ignore God's commandments, particularly the commandments to treat their neighbors with justice and compassion. They put power and money and sex and nation and social status and so many other things in front of God. In other words, they say their wedding vows to God and then immediately go out and start sleeping with other people. And I realize that that might sound like a crude analogy, especially for church, but that's the exact same metaphor that God uses over and over throughout the Bible. I was your husband, God says, uh, throughout scripture. You were my bride, but you cheated on me. You committed adultery. You promised to be faithful, and then I caught you in bed with the guy next door. This is the language that Old Testament books of the Bible, like Jeremiah and Hosea hinge on. Way before Adele and Taylor Swift, God was writing some really powerful breakup songs. Before Kim and Kanye and A-Rod and J-Lo, humanity was cheating on God. And I say humanity and not just Israel, because from the start, this covenant, this relationship was meant to be for all nations. Uh, this moment in the wilderness was the start of something that all people were invited into. Going all the way back to Abraham and Sarah, back to the Adam and Eve, this was a story about and for everyone. From the very beginning, we were all created 
for a relationship with God. This isn't just the story about God's love for them. It's about God's love for us. It's not just a story about how they broke God's heart. It's about how we broke God's heart, which kind of changes the way we hear the story of Jesus, doesn't it? Uh, The story of God becoming human, stepping into our world in order to save our world, isn't just the story of some detached deity swooping in from the sky to save the day. This isn't a Superman story. This is the story of a broken-hearted husband leaving home to find his estranged ex-wife, the woman who had cheated on him in order to welcome her back home. And again, this is not my metaphor. This is exactly how it's described in the book of Hosea, one of the most powerful and moving paragraphs in the Bible in which God says, I am going to allure her. In the wilderness, I am going to speak tenderly to her. In that day, you will call me my husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. I will show my love to the one called not my beloved. And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. If you want to know the purpose behind the story that we are telling in this lead up to Easter, if you want to know the motivation behind the entire gospel, take a moment this week and reread the first three chapters of Hosea. The reason Jesus came to earth was love, brokenhearted but refusing to give up love. That is the reason God became a person. That is the reason Jesus spent his life teaching and healing and eating with the kinds of people that everyone else found unlovable. That's the reason that Jesus didn't turn back even when everyone else turned on him. It's the reason Jesus ended up on the cross. It's the reason Jesus died. He did it for love. The standing together, sticking it out in the midst of the storm kind of love. The till death do us part kind of love. The till resurrection finally brings us back together kind of love. Now, how Jesus' death and resurrection managed to restore this relationship that had fallen apart is a big and complex subject. One that we will learn a lot more about over the next five or six weeks. But in short, the story of Jesus is the story of how God took all of the blame and brokenness and shame that belonged to us and put it on himself. It's the story of Jesus being faithful, even when we weren't. Of Jesus being faithful on our behalf. Of Jesus inviting us to accept his faithfulness as if it were our own. It's God saying, despite everything, I am going to stay true to my promise to love you, even to the point that it undoes the betrayal and heartbreak that you have caused me. I still love you. And I'm inviting you to love me back. In other words, it is a reproposal, a sort of second wedding, which brings us back to where we started. A few days before Jesus is crucified, when somebody asks him, what is the greatest commandment? 
And basically, what does God want from us? What is the point beneath all this? And here's what Jesus says. The most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. When asked what mattered most, Jesus called them back to that original promise, that original vow. This isn't a command to try harder to feel love towards God. This is an invitation to come back home, to step back into this relationship that had fallen apart. This is love. One of Jesus's closest friends wrote several years later in the book of the Bible, now known as 1 John, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. We love because God first loved us. More than anything, my hope for this series is that as we walk alongside each other in Jesus on the road that leads to Easter, we find ourselves growing in that love. And again, this doesn't mean falling deeper in love with God or feeling stronger affection for God, though I hope for both. I I hope that as we spend more time with Jesus in the weeks ahead, that we will grow in our admiration of and excitement about God. But that's not what I mean by love. What I mean by growing in love for God is growing into this love that we have committed ourselves to, growing into the relationship that God has welcomed us into. This is love as a promise, love as a commitment, not just love as a feeling. Because the truth is, sometimes we don't actually feel all that loving towards God. Sometimes we don't feel much of anything. And sometimes we feel angry or numb or doubtful, and none of those feelings is necessarily wrong. We don't usually get to choose how we feel. Love is choosing how to act regardless of how we feel. Love is a commitment in which we can be honest about how we feel without our relationship being threatened, and it's that sort of love that we want to mature in. Maybe you have grown up Christian by default. For you, this means taking a hard look for the first time or for the first time in a while at what it means to be committed to Jesus and determining whether you really are dedicated to this for life. Or maybe you are already definitely committed. You have already said yes to loving God, but find yourself drifting away being drawn away by this impulse to be unfaithful. Maybe for you, it's a matter of remembering your promise, of remembering God's love that first convinced you to say yes to this invitation in the first place. Or maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you haven't made any sort of commitment to Jesus, but you are longing to. Maybe you have been wondering when is the right time, wondering if God really even wants you. And if that's the case, I want to be clear. God's invitation has been open to you long before you ever considered loving God. If you want to make that commitment, if you want to become a Christian, 
I would love to talk with you and I know that I'm not the only one. Even if you've just got questions about this, we would love to hear your questions and maybe even help you find answers. The point is though, whatever situation you're in, whether you are committed to God with your whole self, or you have no love for God whatsoever, or you are somewhere in between, there's a place for you in this space. There's a place for you at the table we are about to share together.